My name is Erin Lasley. I've traveled many different roads in my life. I've been a law enforcement officer and first responder in the United States Coast Guard. I've worked in a couple of psychiatric hospitals, but now I'm a professional historian and podcaster. I've also had an interest in true crime for most of my life. In this podcast, I study some of the most notorious crimes through the lens of a historian and analyze what may have inspired criminals, investigators, and even society during the commission of those crimes and investigations. Join me as we look into the history behind the crime. Hi everyone, welcome back to the history behind the crime. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday season or are still enjoying the season, depending on your traditions. It was quiet here in Tacoma and the dogs got thoroughly spoiled. I, I love getting presents. I, I, I adore presents. Who doesn't love presents? Uh, but it's even more special when people remember my dogs and People certainly did remember uh, these two terrors this year. And I think we have enough treats stocked up uh, for the next few months. So thank you to all of those who, um, who remembered my puppies this season. I appreciate it. I'm sure a lot of you have heard authorities apprehended a suspect in the quadruple homicide of four university students in Moscow, Idaho. I was really interested to learn that investigators utilize genetic genealogy to help track down this offender. To my recollection, and if I'm wrong, please reach out to me, please email me. Uh, to my recollection, this may be the first use of genetic genealogy in a recent case. Usually, genetic genealogy is used in cold cases when almost every other investigative tool has failed. This just proves that genetic genealogy can be used before cases go cold and can help investigators solve a case in a matter of weeks rather than a matter of months or years. Something that did disturb me during this investigation was the misbehavior of some amateur sleuths. Friends, homicide investigation, it's not a hobby nor is it a form of entertainment. There are citizen detectives out there that are serious, professional, and know the rules. Unfortunately, the last two months proved that there are a lot of people on social media who don't know what they're doing and don't care if they ruin other people's lives with their, with their theories. First, you don't name names. If you have a working theory of a suspect, don't make it public. You don't know if that person is guilty or not. In your theory, it could snowball and seriously damage an innocent person's life. Go to the police with your suspicions. Second, never reach out to the families. They're going through enough as it is, and they don't need another person asking them questions about the death of their loved ones. Respect their privacy. Third, you do not have all the evidence or details. Police intentionally withhold information for various purposes to protect the investigation. 
It's not because they're hiding something or they're incompetent. It's because they need this information to stay confidential in order to weed out suspects. Thereby, an amateur sleuth's theory is probably a bit flawed and shouldn't be shared on TikTok. If you have some information about a criminal investigation, reach out to the investigators or to a responsible law enforcement advocate who can relay your information. To all those citizen detectives who know and follow the rules, thank you. Your responsible investigations have helped solve hundreds of cases, and I applaud you for your work. Moving on, I got some excellent feedback on the last episode about criminal profiling. I want to thank you so much for your concerns about my loved one who was ill. He had some surgery and is back on his feet again. He's certainly not as cranky as he was before. Also, yeah, there was a lot of stuff I didn't cover in the episode and a lot of history I could have explored just a little bit more. But that's the nice thing about an amateur podcast. We can always do a part two later on. Maybe a thought for next season. I also want to send out another request for listener questions and stories. I want to hear from you. Questions and comments are always appreciated, but I want to hear about some of your true crime stories. Like the time your great aunt Bertha caught a purse snatcher and beat the crap out of him, or your second cousin Carl started an episode of Cops, which makes me think about the the time... I was accidentally in an episode of Cops and didn't know it until about a decade later when I was watching reruns. I'll save that story for another time. Please email your questions or stories and I will read or answer them on the podcast if you like. You can reach me at thehistorybehindthecrime at gmail.com. A few months ago, I was listening to one of John Douglas's books, big surprise, and he talked about the strange case of Richard Chase. My first thought was obviously, okay, that's gross. And my second thought was, that's kind of interesting. It was probably fate because a couple of days later, I was in my used bookstore, another big shocker there. And I came across a book about Richard Chase and knew I had to do an episode about him. But the episode idea evolved from just Richard Chase to some history behind criminal insanity. I want to clarify that insanity is not a medical term. It's strictly a legal term used in a court of law. Nowhere in the DSM the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which I had to buy in college and it was freaking expensive. Nowhere in the DSM will you find a diagnosis for insanity. In this episode, we'll be talking about the legality of insanity and mental health disorders. So when I say something like insane, I mean someone was not responsible for their actions due to mental defect legally. When I say something like schizophrenic, I'm suggesting that person may have a medical diagnosis of schizophrenia. To compound the matter even further, 
Some of the historical cases we'll be talking about, well, the DSM wasn't around. Many mental health disorders hadn't even been coded yet. Psychological disorders and diagnosis have changed regularly, given the, that psychology is a relatively young field of science. And with the more we learn about these disorders, the more we are able to understand them and to codify and classify them. Things that were in the DSM 30 years ago, such as homosexuality, are not in the DSM today because obviously it's not a mental health disorder. Things that weren't in the DSM 30 years ago, such as postpartum depression, can be found in the DSM today because it's a recognized mental health disorder. I'm sure we'll wade through everything just fine because a lot of you are a lot smarter than I am. And that's just my humble moment for the week. It doesn't happen very often. So enjoy it while you can. Insanity defenses are nothing new. They date all the way back to Greek and Roman antiquity. And even Edward II of England created laws in the 14th century protecting the mentally ill from being prosecuted for any crimes. For this episode, we're, we're not going to go all the way back to antiquity. Um, but I want to start when insanity defenses were first codified. To do that, I'll need to take you back to England in the 1800s. On a January day in London in 1843, a 30-year-old man approached Edward Drummond near Downing Street and shot Drummond in the back. The shooter was apprehended and Drummond died five days later from his wounds. The shooter was Daniel McNaughton and he thought he was shooting the British Prime Minister Robert Peel. Daniel McNaughton was born in Scotland in 1813 to an unwed mother, which means he already had one strike against him. Later on, he became, he became an apprentice and then a journeyman in his father's wood-turning shop before briefly becoming an actor. When that failed, he returned to Glasgow and opened up his own wood-turning shop in 1835, which was actually very successful. McNaughton was very intelligent, taught himself French, and even joined debating societies, which was something people did in the 1800s before social media. The older McNaughton got, the more radical his political views became. Suddenly, in 1840, McNaughton sold his business and traveled to both London and France. When he returned in 1841, he started telling his father, and the police. He was being followed and, and persecuted by the Tories, which is the conservative political party in the UK. And not only were they persecuting him, they were spying on him as well. McNaughton's intelligence, intelligence, sudden willingness to walk away from a very successful business, and delusions are just some of the earmarks of paranoid schizophrenia. After McNaughton was arrested for shooting Drummond, who was, in fact, the Prime Minister's private secretary, McNaughton continued on with his claims of persecution by the Tories. During his trial, several medical witnesses testified that McNaughton was mentally ill and that because of his delusions, he not only did not have control over his actions, but he did not know the difference between right and wrong. 
the prosecution actually agreed with this conclusion. And the jury decided McNaughton was not guilty by reason of insanity. It was the first time in Western history that this verdict was ever used. McNaughton was transferred to the State Criminal Lunatic Asylum at Bethlehem Hospital, where he stayed for 21 years before transferring to the newly built Broadmoor Asylum in 1864, which is still around and functional today. McNaughton died in 1865. Today, the McNaughton Rule is the legal standard for insanity defenses in the United States and is used for a, quote, defendant to be found not guilty by reason of mental disorder at the time of the crime. The disorder must have been so grave as to, one, interfere with his or her ability to know or understand the nature or quality of his criminal behavior, and two, to have compromised the defendant's ability to know or understand the legal or moral wrongfulness of his or her's behavior. While researching this, I got a lot of different hits on the first use of the insanity plea or use of the McNaughton rule in the United States. There are a lot of different cases, but this one kind of struck my interest mainly because it really hacked me off. I found it in the Journal of American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law in an article written by Kenneth J. Weiss and Nia Gupta. In 1840, William Freeman, a free black man in New York, was arrested and tried for the crime of horse theft, which was actually a pretty serious crime in the 1800s. Freeman was born a free person of color and by adolescence already demonstrated social, social isolation and some other eccentric traits. He was, he was arrested for the crime, probably more because he was the eccentric black man rather than he was actually guilty of the crime. He and his attorney attempted to prove Freeman's innocence in court, but Freeman was found guilty and sent to prison, where he was beaten so severely he went deaf and suffered a traumatic brain injury. The white man who beat him faced no punishment, and Freeman grew angrier and angrier because he had been accused of horse theft by a white woman, been wrongly convicted by a white jury, and then had been beaten by a white man. By the time he finished his sentence in 1845, Freeman's brother-in-law said Freeman had become so deranged by the injustice and the preoccupation of payback. Six months after he was released from Auburn Prison, Freeman was accused of murdering four members of the Van Nest family in Cayuga County. On March 12, 1846, Sarah Van Nest was attacked and killed outside of her home by a man carrying a knife. Her husband, John, ran to her aid and was also stabbed to death by the assailant. The assailant then entered the home and killed Sarah's mother, as well as Sarah and John's child. A guest of the home, Van Arsdell, fought with the assailant before the assailant escaped the scene. The next day, Freeman was found about 40 miles from the Van Nest home and was arrested for the murders. William H. Seward, a former governor of New York, decided to take the case as Freeman's lawyer, believing that Freeman had a mental illness 
and should not be held responsible for his actions. He argued that Freeman was insane and brought in witnesses who testified about what Freeman was like before his injuries and after. He also brought in medical experts who testified that they believed Freeman was insane. Despite these efforts, the judge still found Freeman sane and competent for the trial, and the case was moved forward. During the trial, the judge refused to let in the medical expert testimony proclaiming Freeman as insane. After both sides presented their evidence, the jury found Freeman guilty of the murders and was sentenced to death. You should know, during deliberations, jury members could hear the crowd outside literally screaming for Freeman's death. It was very possible if the jury found Freeman not guilty, a mob would have stormed the courthouse and lynched Freeman. Seward continued to advocate for Freeman after the trial ended and filed an appeal arguing that the trial court should have allowed the medical testimony to be presented to the jury. The appellate court reversed the trial court decision and believed that even if a defendant is held to be competent enough to stand trial, they can still present evidence during the trial to support their defense of insanity. The appellate court reversed the trial court decision and believed that even if a defendant is held to be competent enough to stand trial, they can still present evidence during the trial to support their defense of insanity. Freeman was granted a new trial, but died soon after the appellate court decision. While in prison, Freeman had been chained up in his cell and was really sick. Doctors noted discharge oozing from his ear, most likely due to the beating he had undertaken during his last prison sentence, and also commented on his mental deterioration. Those observations were made in March 1847. He would be released from his chains in August, when he died six days after being physically released. Freeman's case, though the first use of the, the McNaughton rule in the United States, was relegated to a footnote in history until a 1993 trial when the, quote, black rage defense was used and the Freeman decision was used as background. That was the case of Colin Ferguson, and a shooting spree on Long Island. I'll let you read up on that one. In the United States, one of the more entertaining early uses of the insanity plea was used by an American politician who darn well knew what he was doing. Daniel Sickles was one of those characters that people love to read up about because, well, he was a character. Sickles was born in New York in 1819 to a relatively middle-class family and followed in his father's footsteps and became a lawyer and politician. When he was 32, he married 16-year-old Teresa. But don't worry, that didn't stop him from having fun. When he was on a diplomatic mission to London, he left pregnant Teresa at home and took along with him Miss Fanny White, who was a famous sex worker back in New York. Sickles even introduced Fanny to Queen Victoria, using his political opponent's surname as an alias for Fanny. 
1856, Sickles was elected to the U.S. Congress as a representative from New York. In February 1859, Sickles got into a bit of hot water. He had discovered his wife had been having an affair with U.S. Attorney for D.C., Philip Barton Key III, who just happened to be the son of Francis Scott Key. In a fit of rage, Sickles shot and killed Key in Lafayette Square, which is just right across the street from the White House. Sickles turned himself in and confessed to the whole thing, saying he did it in a moment of insanity. His lawyer, who would be the future Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, ran with this idea, and the press and public loved it. Stanton and Sickles, and Sickles' allies pushed a press campaign, and the public ate it up. Hell, the public even thanked Sickles for ridding D.C. of such a scoundrel, and President James Buchanan sent Sickles a personal note of encouragement, kind of like, keep your chin up, old boy. During the trial, Stanton pretty much said, yes, Congressman Sickles did shoot and kill Key, but he was out of his mind when he did it. A jury acquitted Sickles of murder, but I think it probably had more to do with Sickles' charisma rather than his supposed insanity. Sickles went on to reconcile with his wife and even became a halfway decent union general during the Civil War. He employed the use of runaway slaves in the military, trained black soldiers, and inadvertently may have contributed to the Union victory at Gettysburg, which is a pretty interesting story for all you Civil War buffs. Sickles continued on with his eccentric antics, including snubbing Queen Victoria, and was even rumored to have an affair with Spanish Queen Isabella II. But history will mostly remember him for the murder trial and the acquittal due to insanity. There's a few other high-profile insanity cases in the U.S. during the 1800s, including that of Charles Guiteau, who assassinated President James Garfield on July 2, 1881. Guiteau was upset Garfield didn't appoint him with a government office, despite Garfield not even knowing the man. Though Guiteau claimed he wasn't mentally ill, his background suggests otherwise, especially since he showed signs of religious mania, paranoia, and grandiosity. Like Guiteau, a jury didn't think he was insane either and found him guilty and sentenced him to death despite Guiteau giving his testimony in epic poem and being manic all through the trial. He was hanged on June 30th, 1882. The insanity defense did work for John Hinckley Jr. when he attempted and failed to assassinate President Ronald Reagan in 1981. Hinckley thought the assassination would win him the love of actress Jodie Foster. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity and shortly thereafter, the Insanity Defense Reform Act was passed and made it more difficult to plead guilty by insanity in federal court. Most of the cases we talked about were those concerning assassinations and murder in the 1800s. 
I want to look at some cases in the 20th century that are not assassinations, but those of serial killers. To start, let's talk about the cases of two douche canoes who tried to use the insanity defense to get away with murder. The first being David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, also known as the 44 caliber killer, who said a dog made him do it. While Berkowitz probably started his criminal behavior before 1975, he began stabbing people in December of that year and then started shooting people from July 1976 until August 10, 1977, when he was arrested. The summer of 1977 would become known as the Summer of Sam. And there's a very good Spike Lee movie of the same name. A little background on Berkowitz. Berkowitz was the adopted son of Pearl and Nathan and demonstrated early on he had a propensity towards violence, bullying, and fire starting. Guys, he not only killed people, he started a massive amounts of fires in New York and New Jersey. He tried to straighten his life out and joined the U.S. Army in 1971. And I guess he did okay or at least was never caught doing something hinky because he was honorably discharged in 1974. After the army, Berkowitz took a journey to find his birth mother and became a bit troubled when he found her and was told he was given up for adoption because he was born out of wedlock and his mother wanted to continue a relationship with her married lover rather than keep her son. Burn. This would be that moment when the switch was flipped in Berkowitz's head. In December of 1975, he stabbed two girls in Co-op City, New York, but both girls thankfully survived, and Berkowitz decided to trade in his knife for a 44 Special Caliber Bulldog pistol. During his crime spree, Berkowitz killed six people and wounded seven others. He simply walked up to people in cars or on the street at night and shot them. His murders are actually considered sexual homicides because he would revisit the crime scenes in self-pleasure. He left letters behind at crime scenes and sent letters to journalists proclaiming himself to be the son of Sam and signed his letters, Mr. Monster. These letters were really just sick rants from an evil mind, and I wonder if Berkowitz sent them just to set up an insanity plea. Berkowitz was arrested on August 10, 1975, mainly because his car was ticketed in the vicinity of one of his shootings. After his arrest, Berkowitz claimed his neighbor Sam's dog was a demon who told him to kill young women. Though several psyche valves and even Berkowitz himself claimed he wasn't legally insane, Berkowitz stuck with his story about a possessed dog. Berkowitz, however, pled guilty to the murders and was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison with the possibility of parole. And yes, Berkowitz has come up for parole several times, but he has requested not to be paroled each time. He says prison is his place. 
Berkowitz continued to claim Sam's dog made him kill until the day FBI profilers Robert Ressler and John Douglas went to interview him. Douglas talks about this event in his book, The Killer Across the Table. Word from the wise. Don't read this book if you have a tender heart or children. During the interview, Ressler and Douglas were trying to get Berkowitz to talk about himself and why he committed his crimes. They even went so far as to say that there was a killer in Kansas City, which we know today as Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, and they needed Berkowitz's help to find him. Berkowitz continued on that Sam's dog made him do it until Douglas finally lashed out and said, Hey, David, knock off the bullshit. The dog had nothing to do with it. It was Ressler and Douglas's straightforward attitudes and knowledge of the criminal mind that made Berkowitz snap out of it and concede. He admitted he had made the whole thing up about the dog. Berkowitz is still in prison and is highly involved with the prison ministry after finding God in 1987. Wardens and guards have described him as a model prisoner and Berkowitz even sent out an appeal to the D.C. snipers to stop killing people in 2002. Another killer who tried his hand at the, the insanity defense and actually got smart psychiatrists to buy into it was Kenneth Bianchi, who, along with his cousin, Angelo Bono, tortured, raped, and killed 10 women in Los Angeles, and Bianchi killed two other women in Bellingham, Washington. They were known as the Hillside Strangler. Starting in October 1977, Bono and Bianchi chose their victims among the growing population of sex workers in the L.A. area. After viciously murdering these women, Bono and Bianchi left their victims on hillsides in the city. The first few murders were of concern. But because the victims were sex workers, they barely made the news. When the cousins started to kidnap and kill young women and girls from middle-class neighborhoods, the public began to take more of a notice and labeled the killer the Hillside Strangler. No one, aside from a few wise detectives, knew that there were two killers. The murder suddenly stopped in February 1978 but tragedy struck in January 1979 in Bellingham, Washington, when two young women were found strangled to death. The crime scene was sloppy with lots of evidence, and police quickly apprehended Bianchi, who had moved to Washington from California to become a security guard. Investigators in Washington and California connected him to the Hillside Strangler deaths. Bianchi, being an idiot pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to the murders in Washington. His defense? He suffered from multiple personality disorder, or what the DSM labels dissociative identity disorder. I got the following narrative from Dr. Catherine Ramsland's article in Psychology Today. After his arrest, Bianchi's attorney brought in a psychiatrist to examine him. The doctor put Bianchi under hypnosis, got him to admit to several of the murders and to implicate his cousin, and then declared he had a multiple personality disorder, MPD. 
Bianchi had supposedly killed as his alter personality, Steve Walker, and was thus not competent to stand trial. Three more experts were convinced by his condition as well. He was a textbook case. The prosecution hired Dr. Martin Orne to examine Bianchi. In the meantime, detectives had discovered that Steve Walker was the name of a college student from whom Bianchi had stolen transcripts to set up a fraudulent psychiatric practice. This suggested that Bianchi knew enough about psychological syndromes to fake a disorder. He had also seen the movie Sybil and had a book on classic MPD cases and had also seen The Three Faces of Eve. The miniseries Sybil with Sally Field and The Three Faces of Eve are excellent movies, but exaggerated tales of MPD. I still recommend binge-watching them because they are fabulous. Dr. Orne believed that Bianchi had faked being under hypnosis, so he used a ploy. He suggested to Bianchi that most multiples have more than two personalities. Sure enough, Billy emerged. Bianchi even pretended to touch someone who was not actually present. Since visual hallucinations were not considered to be an aspect of MPD, they knew Bianchi was faking it. Under pressure, he admitted to the deception and struck a plea deal in Washington so the state wouldn't fry his ass. There's a great documentary on Hulu called City of Angels, City of Death, where you can watch some of Bianchi's interviews where he transforms into Billy and Steve. It makes you kind of wonder how he fooled these experts. Bianchi was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, which is the DSM way of saying he was a socio or psychopath. However, as we all know, being a psychopath is not grounds for an insanity plea. Bianchi rolled on his cousin Buono, whose trial would be the longest criminal trial in U.S. history and spanned from November 1981 to November 1983. He was found guilty and sentenced to life without parole and died of a massive heart attack in 2002. Good riddance. Bianchi was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole and is housed in the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. He was denied parole in 2010 and won't be eligible again until 2025. He'll be 74 years old. On the other hand, there are killers out there that are nuttier than a porta potty at a peanut festival. One man's crimes and proclivities were so horrifying that he inspired multiple characters in books and movies, including Psycho, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A House of a Thousand Corpses, and its sequel, The Devil's Rejects, and the all time classic, Silence of the Lambs. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Ed Gein. And I do want to warn you guys out there, the next two stories I'm going to tell about Ed and Richard are kind of disturbing. If you have a weak stomach, I suggest you go ahead and skip these stories and go on to the next episode. First, I wouldn't necessarily describe Gein as a serial killer. 
frankly, he's only known to have killed two people. Uh, he may have killed his brother when his brother started talking smack about their mother, but that was actually never proven. After learning more about Gein, I don't know if modern psychologists would have diagnosed Gein with schizophrenia. I don't think Gein's disorder was organic, like schizophrenia or maybe bipolarism. I think his problem was the messed up way he was raised. Gein was born in Wisconsin in 1906 and spent most of his life on the family farm. His father was an alcoholic who was drunk and out of work most of the time. And Gein's mother, Augusta, she was a religious zealot who took advantage of the isolated farm to homeschool her two sons. All women were evil, she said, except her, of course. And she punished her sons for trying to make friends. The other Gein boy managed to sever the umbilical cord. But Ed, he hung on tight. There was no woman like his mother. And Gein devoted his adult life to taking care of her. In fact, his entire being was tied to his mother. He could, he could only relate to himself via Augusta. His mother was his identity. And when she died... That's when things got even stranger. To make a really sick story short, Gein started to visit the local cemeteries after his mother's death to collect body parts. He even killed two women for fresher body parts. If you're asking why Gein was so interested in women's body parts, it had a lot to do with him wanting to be closer to his mother again. It makes no sense to you and me. But to Gein, he was trying to recreate the relationship he had with Mommy Dearest. And he did that through creating things with people. Here's a short list of items police found in Gein's home after his arrest. Whole human bones and fragments. A wastebasket made of human skin. Human skin covering, several chair seats, skulls on his bedposts, female skulls, some with the top sawn, sawn off, bowls made from human skulls, a corset made from a female torso, skin from shoulders to waist, leggings made from human leg skin, masks made from the skin of female heads. One of his victims face masks in a paper bag. The same victim's skull in a box. Another victim's entire head in a burlap sack. The same victim's heart in a plastic bag in front of Gein's potbelly stove. Nine vulva in a shoebox. A belt made from female human nipples. Four noses. A pair of lips on a window shade drawstring. A lampshade made from the skin of a human face. Fingernails from female fingers. And now you know why so many horror movies were inspired by Gein. Was Gein mentally ill or just twisted? 
I think most doctors today would say Gein was very ill and may diagnose him with psychosis caused by the trauma of losing his mother. Gein simply lost touch with reality in a very gruesome way. In November 1957, Gein was charged with first-degree murder, but several doctors determined he was not fit to stand trial. A few doctors diagnosed him with schizophrenia, and Gein was sent to Wisconsin Central State Hospital for the criminally insane until 1968, when it was determined he could reasonably participate in his defense. A judge found Gein guilty of murder during a bench trial, but the same judge deemed him not guilty by reason of insanity during a subsequent trial, and Gein was sent back to the state hospital. Between 1957 and his death in 1984, Gein was a model prisoner, perhaps because he grew up held prisoner by his mother and equated institutionalization with his mother's love. Gosh, there's just so much Freudian psychology in that case. The last case I want to talk about is that of Richard Chase, who we talked about in the beginning. I picked up a short book about Chase entitled Vampire Killer, A Terrifying True Story of Psychosis, Mutilation, and Murder by Ryan Green. It's about 140 pages long in big font, uh, so you could probably read it in a single sitting. I have to admit, as disturbing as the case was, and it is very, very disturbing, I was entertained reading Green's book and ordered his other books. He's a very compelling writer and just he knows how to grab you. It's almost like reading a penny dreadful. So if you're into that kind of thing, you'd like his books. Like Gein, Chase wasn't born into the most stable home life in the world. It was actually pretty dysfunctional. Chase was born in 1950 in Sacramento, California, to a mentally ill mother and a pretty severe father. The trio lived in a one-bedroom apartment, and little Chase was witness to most of his parents' fights and his mother's hypochondria. She was convinced her husband or others were trying to poison her. Things marginally improved when Chase's sister was born, and the family moved into a house with access to the woods. It was at this time Chase would spend hours in the woods, playing pretend, running around by himself, chasing and killing small animals. By the age of 10, Chase had already ticked off every box on the McDonald triad, bedwetting, harming small animals, and fire setting. Throw in his domineering schizophrenic mother and his own mental health issues and you have the making of a serial killer. In his teens, Chase became more distant from other people and began to experiment with drugs. He later moved into an apartment with a few roommates, but his drug usage and propensity for nudism, 24-7, ran all his roommates off. Because of his odd behavior and other traits, he couldn't hold down a relationship or a job, so his father paid all his bills. Okay. I know this is going to sound strange, but I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about Chase's hobbies when he was living alone, because I'm an animal lover, 
It's strange that I can sort of stomach talking about Gein's collection of human vulva, but I can't talk about animal torture killing. Let's just say Chase liked to catch small animals and he liked to use a blender to make himself protein shakes. Soon, he was admitted to the hospital because he got blood poisoning after injecting himself with rabbit blood. Why did he inject himself with rabbit blood? Because he thought he needed a blood to stay alive. Yeah, this guy was off his rocker. Not only that, he believed he was missing his pulmonary artery, his stomach was backwards, his heart had stopped beating, and that Nazis were after him. He was quickly diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and was institutionalized for a year. Nurses in the hospital called him Dracula due to his obsession with blood, and a few of them even quit their jobs because he was just too damn creepy. Unfortunately, after a year of care and medication, he was released into the custody of his mother, his mentally ill, hypochondriac mother, who convinced Chase to stop taking his medications and even allowed him to live on his own again. Guess what? He went from bad to what the holy hell. Guys, this is going to get a little bit gruesome again. Chase was convinced he needed human blood to stay alive. And between December 1977 and January 1978, he killed six people. The first he simply shot and killed out of a fit of rage because his mother wouldn't let him in the house during Christmas. The other five murders were so terrible that I can't imagine anyone not having a difficult time trying to process them. I got some of the following information from Crime Viral. On January 22nd, 1978, Chase produced a crime scene that gave the responding police officers nightmares for many nights to come. They found the victim, 22-year-old Teresa Wallen, who was three months pregnant at the time of her death, murdered at home. Her abdomen had been slashed. The intestines were protruding out of the gaping wound and several of her organs were missing. There was also evidence that the victim's blood had been collected in a yogurt pot and drunk. Only days later, on January 27th, Chase committed his bloodiest massacre, killing 38-year-old Evelyn Murrath, her friend Dan Meredith, and Evelyn's 6-year-old son and 22-month-old nephew. He shot the victims and then mutilated the corpses. First, draining their blood and then cracking open skulls to remove the brain matter. He sliced up their organs and then liquidized them in a blender so he could drink the remains. The baby was missing from the crime scene, but the police were fairly certain from the amount of blood in the playpen that he would not be found alive. The body was not found until six months later. This all happened in Sacramento. And it was another tragedy the town just couldn't come to terms with. During this time, Joseph D'Angelo was active in the Sacramento area. At the time, he was only known as the East Area Rapist, and the whole town was already on high alert because of him. The crimes of this vampire killer was more than some people could stand, 
and they packed their belongings and got the hell out of Dodge. Investigators enlisted the assistance of FBI profilers, and Robert Ressler developed the following profile before Chase was caught. White male, age 25 to 27, thin, undernourished appearance, single, living alone in a location within one mile of the abandoned station wagon owned by one of the victims. Residents will be extremely slovenly and unkept, and evidence of the crimes will be found at the residence. The suspect will have a history of mental illness and use of drugs. Suspect will be unemployed loner who does not associate with either male or females and will probably spend a great deal of time in his own residence. If he resides with anyone, it will be his parents. However, this is unlikely. The suspect will have no prior military history, will be a high school or college dropout, and probably suffers from one or more forms of paranoid psychosis. It was pretty much spot on. Chase was soon arrested and, unbelievably, was deemed fit to stand trial. He was charged with six counts of murder. Now, you think I'm going to say he was found not guilty by reason of insanity? No. A jury convicted him of first-degree murder and sentenced him to death despite the overwhelming amount of evidence that Chase was just one french fry short of a happy meal. Perhaps his crimes, despite his mental illness, were just too heinous to excuse with insanity. Shortly after his conviction, Robert Ressler visited with Chase in prison. Chase gave Ressler handfuls of macaroni he had stashed in his pockets because he thought the guards were trying to poison him. He maintained Nazis were still out to get him, and when asked how Chase picked his victims, he responded that he would try to open doors. If the door was open, he would go in. If the door was locked, it meant he was not welcomed. So always lock your doors, he said. At San Quentin, the other death row inmates encouraged Chase to kill himself because Chase freaked out this bunch of hardened and notorious killers. Chase finally did in 1980 by saving his antidepressants and overdosing. Family members of the victims would go on to sue the psychiatric hospital and doctors who released Chase before his murder spree. Today, the insanity defense is employed in less than 1% of all criminal cases in the United States. As a defense, it's rejected by judges and juries 75% of the time. And the 25% of that 1% that are found insane usually have a lengthy history of severe mental illness that was manifestively active at the time of the crime. In layman's terms, the insanity defense doesn't really work and a defendant has better odds taking a plea deal rather than taking a chance on the insanity defense. As a final thought, those with mental illnesses are more likely to be victims of crimes rather than the offenders. Most people diagnosed with illnesses such as schizophrenia actually lead pretty normal lives with proper care and medication. Even those who choose not to medicate aren't necessarily violent. They are more a risk to themselves than to others when they're in crisis. 
the cases I've talked about in this podcast are extreme cases and shouldn't make you fear mental health illnesses or those who have them. This week, I want to tell you about a cold case in Wisconsin. On November 23rd, 2008, three hunters came across the badly decomposed body of a young woman partially submerged in a frozen creek in the town of Ashford in Fond du Lac County. She was dressed in a strapless black and pink top, pink bra, and blue jeans. She wore no shoes or socks. An autopsy determined she was between 15 and 21 years old, 5 feet 1 inches tall, 120 pounds with light brown to dark blonde hair that was 12 to 14 inches in length. Her death was believed to be a homicide taking place between July and September of 2008. Three years after she was found, the identified woman was buried in a cemetery near Wapon. In 2018, her body was exhumed for forensic testing and a new composite of her was released featuring six different profiles. In 2021, through the use of genealogy research, she was identified as Amy Marie Yuri of Rockford, Illinois. She was 18 years old when she died. I'll post a picture of Amy on Instagram. Investigators learned after her identification that Yuri was a victim of sex trafficking and has spent time in Chicago and Milwaukee. Detectives continue to investigate the case and hold out hope that they will one day be able to discover the circumstances surrounding her death. If you have any information about Amy's murder or know someone who does, you can contact Fond du Lac County Law Enforcement Tip Line at 920-906-4747. If you feel uncomfortable going to the authorities, you can contact me at thehistorybehindthecrime at gmail.com or on Instagram at thehistorybehindthecrime. Someone out there knows something. You may not, but you may know people in Milwaukee or Chicago that do. Share Amy's story with them. If you or someone you know is the victim of human trafficking, you can call 1-888-373-7888. Well, that wraps up things here, my fellow true crime fans. Hopefully, I have something special for you next time. But I like to think that all my episodes are special in their own little way. And on that thought, guys, do me a favor. Take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Bye.